Everything is just right. Baruch Hashem. So you versus yourself. A good question. It's not a question, but it's something that we all experience, feel very strongly. We all can identify within ourselves that there is a major conflict. That we all possess dual personalities. And what do we mean by dual personalities? We all know and uh, we've experienced it at times that we possess a very, very beautiful self. A noble self, a good self, a caring self. And um, some of us might experience it quite often. Some of us less. We have periods of our life when that nobility, when that a higher, pure self emerges quite frequently. And then there are periods of our life when that self is very, very rarely that it peaks out and we get to feel it and sense it. What is that kind of feeling that we have when we're caring, we're kind, we find, we derive great pleasure in, in alleviating the pain of another human being, of giving something to someone. When we come home and we're hungry, but our children need some time, whether you know, if you, you to help them with their homework and study, when our spouse needs something, so the soup can wait. We just naturally feel we want to help. We want to help our children. We want to help our spouse. We want to give. We can be in the midst of important business and a phone and a, and a friend of ours calls and they need help and we find the time. It's okay. You can spend a half an hour speaking and taking care and listening, lending a ear to hear the troubles and really get into trying to help out another person. Even in the midst of your difficulties, even in the midst of your pressures and the like. And right, so we, ha we all feel that. And, and it's not only that we feel, it's not only the generosity and goodness and kindness, but that self can also be experienced as a holy self. I mean, a holy self is with a spiritual, with a spiritual side to it, where we experience a quest, we experience a thirst for spirituality, a thirst for knowledge, for study, for learn, for learning. We love when we're excited to go to a shir. We're excited to hear a Dvar Torah. We wait in anticipation for the point in the midst of the prayer where the rabbi is going to give over something on the parsha. It's meaningful. It's interesting. We want. We're seeking. Prayer is alive. When you open up your siddur and you say the words, you go to shul, you come to shul, we're naturally drawn to go to a quiet spot. Take your siddur, you say the words, and the words are meaningful. You get into it, feel a connection to Hashem. You're trying to understand what you're saying. You understand, you feel emotionally connected. So we have these moments in our life where there is this higher, inner, a purer self. Where we feel that we want to contribute to, 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 to do good in the world. But uh, then that side disappears. It can be after an hour. It can be after a few hours, a day, a week, a month. And then another side emerges. And the other, the other side is, is a... An, an, an unholy self. A, generally, we feel very, very selfish, very preoccupied with our own pleasures, our own desires, our own needs, and our own wants. And we are the most important thing to us is the immediate gratification. You know, when we don't have any time for our children, we don't have any time for our spouse, and um, you know, even after you've eaten dinner. And you'd rather, and your kids need your, your, your help, so you're nothing. You just want to run to the couch and watch TV. You want to, you're, you're, you're interested in, in just you know, getting to your email and all and everything else that you enjoy doing on the computer and the like. Where other people aren't important, even your children aren't important. The only thing that you care about is your, your, your fun, your enjoyments. 
And it's in other things, you know, it, 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 it definitely don't have a, an appetite for spirituality. Even if you go to shul, immediately your ears are, peer, are perked up to hear where there is a good conversation going, and that's where you'd like to sit during davening, because the words aren't appealing, the words are meaningless. And, and, and you're not seeking, you know, to, to study Torah. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't interest you. Divinity, godly things, spirituality are, is meaningless. Prayer is dry. So... It's very, very easy, you know, where you just decide instead of going to shul, I'll stay home. I'll just quickly roll, put on my tefillin, one, two, three, and get it off as fast as I can. We all go through these periods. And then we feel, in addition to that, the, the, we, we can experience cravings and desires, wants that are, are very mundane, earthy, and we all have that, but definitely not holy, but sometimes it goes further than that, where one desires and, and wants things that are, that are not kosher, and that aren't, that are forbidden, that are wrong, and not only wrong by the, because the Torah says so, but things that uh, it's just, just out of a, our, our innate sense of morality, we know that this is wrong. And nevertheless, we crave them, and we want them very, very strongly. And the craving can sometimes just be a craving, Sometimes it can be a craving that materializes into further pursuit. We allow our minds to entertain it, to think about it, sometimes to even, God forbid, go ahead and act on it. It's not foreign to us. It happens in our lives. And so we feel these, this intense conflict, these two sides. And of course we can explain it, because we always know that Hashem has given us all Life in this world is meant to be challenging. So Hashem has given us a Yetzah Tov and a Yetzah Hara, a good inclination and an evil inclination. So the Yetzah Tov is a pull, an inclination towards good, and Yetzah Hara is an inclination towards that which is not good. But the problem is that just explaining Yetzah Tov and Yetzah Hara doesn't work. And I'll tell you why. Because we feel... The good that we feel doesn't only feel like an inclination. The bad that we sometimes feel, the, the interest, the desire to, for, for, for sinfulness or for that which is wrong, isn't sensed just as an inclination, as a pull towards something. But rather it, it feels like this is who I am. This is me. This is what I am all about. At the time that we are feeling an, an urge for spirituality, for holiness, for goodness... We really identify with that. That feels like me. I want, I love prayer. I love to study, I love to learn. I marvel in doing goodness to other people in kindness. This is who I am. We feel very strongly, very, very much that this is, this is the true self. But then, when the other self emerges, that too feels very real. It's not like there's some outside force pulling us. Feels like this is what I like. I have no patience for spiritual matters. I enjoy things. I enjoy the material. I enjoy earthy things. And even things that are unholy and things that, are, that are, could be in the realm of the, of the, sin, of the sinful. That too, I, I want. That's who I am. I might be an animal, but I'm an animal. That's who I am. So, and it's sort of like, you know, we read a few weeks ago in the parasha when Paro had a dream so there were the seven cows. So first there were seven healthy-looking um, cows, and then seven skinny cows came up. And the skinny cows ate, consumed and ate and swallowed the seven fat cows. And um, th after they consumed those cows, it, um, when you looked at the, other, at the skinny cows, they, they didn't, it wasn't noticeable that they swallowed the other cows. And... Uh, so that's what it feels in our life, that when the unholy side emerges, it's the other side, the godliness, the holy self, completely dissipates. It's as if it never existed. And then on the other hand, when that higher self emerges, when that purer self emerges, we look at ourselves and we can't believe that this is the same person. That I, who I'm standing now, and I have such an aspiration, such a desire for meaning in my life, for living a higher, a higher life, could be someone who, who has 
that this very same heart has craved for such lowly things. So that's why it, 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 it can't just be inclination. Because of this conflict, because of these two sides within the human being, many people, um, so you, you come to the conclusion and you say that, you know, who am I? What am I really? Who am I? Am I an animal or am I an angel? In Yiddish there is an expression, am I a malach or a galach? Who, who am I? What is my, my true identity? One of them can't be true. What do I really desire? One of them must be my imagination. And which one is the more likely to be the imagination? So for most of us, the earthy side, the unholy side, is, or very, is more present. The higher noble self might be less present. And therefore, people can reach to come to a conclusion, a very sad conclusion, that all spirituality and all of these higher feelings aren't true and aren't real. That's not who I am. It's just a, and uh, maybe sometimes I try to convince myself because of something that I, that this is what I want, but it's not really who I am. And after many times of going through the cycle of having an experience, a spiritual, a spiritual period of your life, and then the spirituality evaporating, and then you going, and then re, re-encountering an animal self, an unholy self, and that unholy self is just as impure, just as lowly, just as ugly as it was before the period that we've had, before that high that we've experienced. And this, if this repeats itself a couple of times, one can reach a point where you don't want to go through the pain anymore of the ups and downs. You don't want to go through that, the, the, this, this. And then, so therefore you just stop trying to, to raise yourself up, to experience that higher self. You just give in and say, this is, I'm an animal, that's who I am, and that's it. So for that we have an incredible book and one of the most uh, the prime Hasidic uh, 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 books ever written. And this is the r- book written by Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the famous Tanya. And in the book of the Tanya, the, the, he, he is the one book where he comprehensively deals with this, with this dilemma. And he's, he's going to explain that this is the human condition. But what he introduces, the main idea that the Tanya introduces to resolve this dilemma, is the idea that we possess two souls. It's not just two inclinations that we have, but that we have two nefashos, two souls. Yes, there are two beings residing in us. The human being is a composite from two souls. Two souls, not just an inclination, a soul. Each soul has an entire world, is, is a being onto it, has an entire personality. A personality with a sense of pleasure, with a sense of desire, with, a, with an intelligence, with an emotion, and the like. Each one, and they come from two separate planets. One soul is holy and godly and spiritual. The other soul is a soul of darkness. And this is what makes up the human psyche. It's, we are a blend of these, two, of these two souls put together. And therefore, the times in our life, when you wake up in the morning, and you're so spiritually oriented, and you have this... This, 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 this desire and this want to study, to learn, to do good, to help people, to do kindness and the like, it, it is because you've merited for whatever reason, sometimes it's not even due to our work, it could be because maybe of a merit of a mitzvah that we've once done, that God has given us the gift, that our holy soul, our higher soul, is now manifest and felt in our physical brain and in our heart. So we're feeling that soul. And if we're feeling that soul, that's what, that's what the soul is all about. Its entire being is gravitating towards heaven, it's gravitating towards, towards spirituality. Then, however, it, that's not the full human being, that's only a, a part of us. That part might go and go back in and into, into the potential or might, and might be pushed to the side after a period of time by the animal side, and the animal side emerges. And the animal side is an identity, a being, that couldn't care less about spirituality, and all it wants is the satiation of its own pleasures and of its own wants. It's an extremely selfish being. 
But the fact that we identify this as two separate souls, we know that both these experiences are true experiences. They're real. Neither is a figment, it's not an imagination. When you're experiencing spirituality, the spirituality is very, very real. It's true, that's who you want, that's what you really want. But it's your soul wanting, that higher self that is wanting. When you're experiencing these earthy, lowly cravings, that too is part of your psyche. That too, it's not your fault. That's the way God created you. And, it, and that's the work in our life, that we, which we, our, is to be a life where these two souls interact with each other. And of course, our work is to try to expand our divine consciousness, and our godly consciousness, and for that to sublimate and transform the animal consciousness bit by bit. But it's sort of like the dilemma that Rivka was in. See, Rivka found herself in a dilemma, similar dilemma. She found within her womb, she found when every time she was pregnant, and she found when she was walking, and she passed through an unholy place, there was a banging and someone, one of the, she found that the baby inside of her wanted to come out. Then, when she passed by a shul, she passed by a, a holy environment, there was again a kicking, there was again a, an excitement. And she was confused. Besides the physical pain that she had, what was mainly, this was, she was, she was emotionally disturbed because she thought that her child is schizophrenic. She thought that her child has a mental disorder because he can't figure out who he is. Who is he? What is he all about? So she went to the, to, to the, to the yeshiva, she went to a choir, she went to shame, and she answered with prophecy that these are two children. This calmed her down already. Even if she knows that one is a sinner and one is going to be a tzaddik, that's okay. At least I know that, that, this, that this child is, 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 is normal. The problem is that we are all possessing these two souls within our womb. But it's comforting to know that these are two separate entities, two separate ideas. Now, to really, really understand this thoroughly, see, the Tanya is, a, is the master, literally the master of the soul. He describes the human psyche, especially the Jewish psyche, in such a descriptive, elaborate form, where he goes through all the nuances of the experience of these two souls. But, and so to really learn it well, one should really study it thoroughly, inside, and the like. However, what we're trying to do in this particular class is to give just an overview of what the Tanya has to say about the human condition, about the struggle, and of course about the tools and the instruments in which he enables us to resolve this conflict. I mean, the conflict is going to be all of our life, but in order for us to, to fulfill our life's purpose and our life's mission within this conflict. So what we're going to try to do is go through the Tanya. Uh, each class, we're going, to, we're going to take one of the chapters. And again, I'm not doing justice to the book, and therefore it's always good for someone to study it uh, more in, in, in depth. But we're trying, well, what we're going to do is just, each class is going to be dedicated to one, one chapter. So we're going to try to pick the main points of the chapter. And uh, so we keep the main theme. And it's good for both. It's good for people that have never studied the book, just to get an overall introduction to the book. It's also good for those that have studied it, because sometimes when you're studying it and you're getting into all the nitty-gritty, you lose the forest for the trees. So what we're going to try to do is give the overall perspective of how he sees the human condition and how this... And, 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 and we're very, very... The knowledge itself of understanding this is, equips us with, 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 and, it, and empowers us with a great power to proceed in our life and to resolve a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety that comes from this, from, 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 from the conflict. So the opening of the book of the Tanya, um, he addresses, before he gets into the subject of the two souls, he um, speaks of the general moral condition of, of human beings. You know, we're, we have a, 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 a measuring, a measurement. You know, being that we're living in a world where there is freedom of choice, there is good and there is evil. So as people, we can either live a good life and do the right thing or do the wrong thing. So if someone is doing the right thing and doing the good thing, so how would we call that person? So we say this is a good person. Someone who's doing bad, doing the wrong, that's a bad person. So the Torah uses, what are the terms that the Torah uses for good and bad? So it's tzaddik and rasha. A tzaddik is a righteous individual, and a rasha is a, 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 uh, a sinful person, or a guilty person, or we might say an evil person. That's rasha. 
So we have tzaddik and rasha, good and bad. But then there is also people that are not neither say that they're very, very good or very, very bad. They're fluctuate. They're somewhere in the middle. And that's why there is another term in the, in the Talmud, which we refer to as for people, which is called the Benoni. Who's the Benoni? People that are in the middle. In the middle means at times they're good and at times they're bad. So when would we, from conventional wisdom, the way we always understand this before we study the Tanya, how do we define a tzaddik? What is a tzaddik? Someone who is doing good. Is he always doing good? Well, always, always. Everybody's human. People can make mistakes. And we have Yitzhahara and the, and, the, and the like. So if they're sort of within the upper 10% or 15% of, hum, of, of, of humanity, which means they're most of their life, 85, 90%, they're doing good, well, that's a tzaddik. Who is considered a wicked person? Someone who is mostly doing bad. And then who is in the middle? The people that are half and half. Or we would say from 35 to 65, right in the middle, those are who or, you know, might be a little bit more, a little, a little bit more sinning or might be a little bit more virtue and merits. But somewhere in the middle, that's called the Bain. And if we put their actions on a scale, the scale would be hovering in the middle. That's, that would be considered the Bainuni. That's conventional. That's the way, and that's what the Rambam says. Maimonides says when a person is judged, how do we judge a human being? So God judges, he takes all the merit of a person and he weighs it against the sins and the, and the, and the, and the, and the negative things. If most of what a person do, did is good, then the person is judged as a tzaddik. If a person is, most of what they do is bad, then they're judged as a, as a rasha. Now most doesn't necessarily mean quantity, how many mitzvahs you've done, or how many sins the person has done. We also, Maimonides says, God also looks at the quality of what has been done. Sometimes there can be one act that, in, that was so difficult and so hard, and it involved so much sacrifice, that that, that one act is equivalent to um, many, many, many sins. And, he, and Maimonides says that we don't know how God measures. God is the only one who knows the value of a sin and the value of a mitzvah. But that's the idea of tzaddik and bainani rasha as it is in the, conventional, in the conventional sense. The Tanya, however, takes issue with this or questions this. And he argues like this. He says that we cannot say, we cannot accept that a tzaddik is someone, uh, the, the ordinary, to say that a tzaddik is someone who is mostly doing good, and the rasha is someone who is mostly doing bad, and bainani are people that are somehow hovering within, in the middle, because, for two reasons, and he makes two powerful arguments. One argument is as follows. The Talmud says that one of the great sages, his name was Rabbah, one of the great Talmudic sages, said about himself, I am a Benoni. I am an intermediate person. I'm an average person. I'm not a tzaddik. I don't think I'm a rasha. I am an, a medium. I'm the middle. I'm an intermediate person, an average person. His students were horrified that he said that. They believed their teacher was a, was a tzaddik. So his student, Abaya, says to his Rebbe, he says that if you are a Benoni, you're not letting anybody live. Because if you're only a Bainani, so where does that put us all? Then we were all, we're all less than you. So we would be in the category of wicked. And uh, so that's, that's, that's not good. So we know for sure you're a tzaddik. So he, 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 he argued with him. But the question he has, has as follows. If a Bainani is someone who is half sinful and half meritous, half always, so then how could Rabbah, who was a great tzaddik, who did mitzvahs all the time, but also studied Torah all day and night. Robert says that when the angel of death tried to snatch his soul, the angel could not take his soul because since he was in the midst of Torah study, and Torah is life, especially people who studied Torah in a pure manner, which means that the holiness and the godliness of the Torah is fully manifest in them, so that at that time they cannot... They, they, a person cannot die in the midst of being connected to life. 
So the 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 Yates, the the angel of death couldn't couldn't uh, was sent to to uh, to take his soul, but he couldn't. So he had to trick him. He had to do some kind of distraction. He made this huge noise. He distracted him. Same like it says about King David, that he, that he wasn't able to die because he studied Torah all the time. So Rabbah was one of those sages. So here you have a person who 24-7, all, I mean, besides the minimal amount of time that he has to sleep and do other things, but all the rest of the time he's studying Torah. How could Rabbah have said about himself or thought about himself that he is a benoni, that he's half sinful? Even you, you'll say, well, it's humility. He was humble. But humility doesn't mean deception. It doesn't mean, like Moshe Rabbeinu was the most humble person. What does that mean? That Moshe Rabbeinu thought that he's a sinner? That he eats non-kosher food? And he does, and he engages in non-kosher relationships? And, and that he does, uh, and he speaks Lashon Hara? He knows he doesn't do those things. So, what does it mean he's humble? The humility of Moshe was that he recognized that he's not utilizing his power the way he should. If other people would have been blessed with such a brilliant, powerful soul like him, they would, have, they would have done much more than he did, and the like. That was the humility. Humility has to be within the framework. So to believe, if, if, if a Bainani is someone of 50% of his time, 50% of his sinning, so that's ridiculous. It can't be that Rabbah would believe or can say about himself that he is a Bainani. Therefore, what does that conclude? That even a person who is a tzaddik, who hardly ever sins, like Rabbah, doesn't, isn't necessary that he is a tzaddik. From this story itself, we already can deduce, from Rabbah believing that he was a Benini, we have to say, that a person who is living a life similar to Rabbah, which means he's always doing positive things, and he's always doing good, nevertheless, it, that does not prove that he is a tzaddik. He might still be a Benini. So then, so now we're very curious. That means that a Benini is someone on a far, far, far higher than what we have thought. Okay? Another proof that he brings to this is that the sages say, and we have this in the Talmud, in various places, that if a person sins, and then the person does tshuva, sins and does tshuva, then the person is considered a tzaddik. You're considered a perfectly righteous person. Even if it's a very, very bad sin. Even if it's a very ugly sin. If you sinned and you do tshuva, tshuva means a firm resolve. I will not repeat the sin again. The person is considered a tzaddik. How about if the person did not do tshuva? You didn't do tshuva. Which means, what does it mean not to do tshuva? You sinned and you're saying to yourself, you know what, if it's going to occur, if the opportunity comes another time, I'm going to do this again. This was fun. This was exciting. I'm going to do this again. If you didn't relinquish the hold of the sin, then the person is considered a Russia. Considered a Russia. Wicked, whatever Russia means. Even if that sin is just one thing. One thing. But if it's something that you're not willing to relinquish, and you're holding on to it, and saying, well, I do this, this is the kind of thing that I do, so then the person is considered, according to the Talmud, according to the Talmud, this person is considered Russia. So the question then becomes, when can a person be a Benuni? When are you a Benuni? If the person has a sin on his record, and he has not wiped the sin away, and he's even for one sin considered already Russia. If the person has, has done tshuva and there is no sin, then they're a tzaddik. So where exactly is the Bainani? Yes in Russia, no sin, Sadik. There seems to be no gray area. Seems to be no middle. So where do we find this medium person? So therefore, the Tanya concludes a very interesting thing. That there is two definitions. When we're speaking about Sadik and Bainani and Russia, there's two definitions for these terms. One definition is when it comes to judgment. Now we can all breathe a sigh of relief. And that is, when God judges us, God is not judging us by the strict and high standards of the Tanya. He's not. God is using the Maimonides, Maimonides terms, and that is as follows. If most of your life you're doing good things, you're a good person. And you're gonna, the soul is going to be rewarded and go to Gan Eden and everything, and all the good that comes 
to a tzaddik. All the blessings that ought to come to a tzaddik, that is given to a person who is mostly doing good. If God forbid the person is mostly doing bad, then the person is considered a rush, a wicked person. Then they need to go through some of the cleansing or whatever it is to remove that, and then of course they're rewarded for the good, because God rewards a person for all the good you've done, but that person is considered rush. If the person is sort of in the middle, then they're a benoni. That is in terms of judging the person, when God judges us. However, there is another standard to these, or definition, to tzaddik, benoni, and rashi. According to that definition, over here we're dealing with the truest sense of the word. What does the word really, really mean? The real definition. The real definition of someone who is a truly, truly tzaddik is someone who never, ever, ever sins. Doesn't sin. The truth is that Tanya says, not only doesn't the tzaddik ever sin, even the benoni, even the intermediate person, never sins. Why? As we said earlier. Because if a person sins, then already the sin puts them into the category, as we said from the Talmud, into the category of Russia, of wicked. So the Benini doesn't either ever sin. So a tzaddik is a non-sinner and a Benini is a non-sinner. People that sin, and this is a little harsh, I know it's a little harsh, are considered rush. But according to this, I want to explain something. Russia doesn't mean over here wicked. Russia over here means weak. The weakness. We haven't yet strengthened our muscles. We haven't yet exercised enough so that we still have a weakness. And that is why the person can sometimes succumb to a temptation and sin. And that's why they're still within the category of Russia. In order to qualify to be a Benuni or to be a Tzaddik, one has to be completely beyond sin. If that's the case, so if both the Benuni and the Tzaddik never sin, so then what's the difference between the two? When does someone graduate from being a Benuni and when does the person become a Tzaddik? When does that happen? So the, so the Tanya says like this. He says, a tzaddik is someone, not only doesn't he sin, but he doesn't even have an inclination to sin. Doesn't even have a desire to sin. Is a person who is so thoroughly holy, he has so, as we mentioned earlier, we have a godly self, a higher self. That godly self has so pervaded his entire existence, his entire being. He has vanquished all the evil from his heart. He has no Yetzirah anymore. There's no appetite for sin. That's when a person is deemed, according to the true sense of the word, the person is called a tzaddik. As long as a person still has a struggle, if a person is a strong human being, which means they never ever do anything wrong and they're always doing what's right, but they do experience an appetite. They do experience cravings. There is an, an inner desire for them sometimes to violate, to eat something that's not kosher, to engage in a non-kosher relationship, or to, 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 to whatever, whatever to say, uh, to speak gossip, to say uh, whatever, all these things, these are, if a person still experiences a desire for these things, then the person is deemed obeynani. And a what is a rasha? A rasha is someone who actualizes the Yetzirah. If the evil inclination comes to fruition, if it comes into action, then the person is called a rasha. To understand all of this, to understand these, these concepts, over here is where he begins to develop the theme of the two souls. Again, so what we spoke about till now is, main, is a little bit parenthetical. It's just that we cannot begin studying the Tanya unless we lay the outer structure of, where, of, of, of how he sees human beings in terms of their attainment, their spiritual attainment in their lives. We mentioned earlier, let's take the questions, we'll leave time for questions at the end. We mentioned earlier that um, the Tanya says that we all possess two souls. So here in the end of chapter, of the first chapter of the Tanya, he discusses and he, and he, and he uh, introduces us to one of the two souls. And this is what he says. He brings this, this is not his idea that we have two souls, this is an idea that is brought down in the, already from the Arizal, from Reb Chaim Vital. And its origins are even earlier in, 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 uh, in Kabbalah and the like. That, there, that a human being consists of these two souls. And he derives it from a verse, from a pasuk, 
where it says, God says, I created souls. And it's not only speaking about the souls of all human beings, speaking about each individual person has, these, has two souls. So which is so the first soul that he discusses? Interesting enough is that the first soul that he discusses is the soul that enters into our, our psyche and begins to develop in our lives at an earlier stage. And that is the lower soul, the animal soul. This soul, he says, mentioned earlier, is a soul of darkness. It's an unholy spirit. What's its function? It's very important. What's the function of this soul? This soul is the animator of the body. This soul is what makes, it's the engine of the body, it's the motor of the body. This is what enables the body to move. Because we understand that the body itself is lifeless unless there is a spirit to it. And the spirit, that's the nefesh, a nefesh which enlivens the body. This soul resides in the blood of the person. It's a spiritual entity. Even though it's spiritual, meaning it's not physical, it's still unholy. It's an impure spirit. And it sits in the blood, and its main function is to act as the life force of the body. Simply, in order for you to move your toes, this soul has to trigger, has to enliven, invigorate the body for the muscles to contract, for any physical act to take place. Now what's the unholiness of this soul? So he says an interesting thing. He says this soul comes from the realm of what's called the klipa, from the realm of the shells. It's derived, where is it coming from? It's a spirit, where is it before it comes into the body? Where is it coming from? So he says this soul comes from a place of darkness. And the term that he uses, a very important term, he says the soul is a soul, it's a klipa element. What does klipa mean? It's a Kabbalistic term for the unholy. But what does klipa mean? What is the definition of it? Klipa means a shell. A shell. A peel. A husk. And the idea is as follows. In truth, all of existence comes from God. God created the world. God created everything. Without God, and we understand that all of creation is hinged, is dependent on the will of God that God, that God wants it to exist. At a certain time, whatever, there was no time before creation, God decided, I want a world. So He created it. And as long as God wants the world, the world exists. When God doesn't want it, it doesn't exist anymore. But the world is not only dependent on God's will, because God didn't just create the world through His will, God created the world through speech, through speaking. He's, as we say in Bereshis, Vayomer Elohim, Yehior, Vayomer Hashem, Hashem said, let there be a firmament, let the earth give forth vegetation, let the let the let there be there should be let the, let the waters swarm with life and the like. There were ten utterances. As the Mishnah says there are ten utterances that through which God created the world. Now, when a person, the reason why we're using speech is to illustrate something. When you're speaking to someone else, when you're communicating through speech, what is happening is you are the words are entering into the listener. It's not just you're speaking here and they're there. Your words are, being pro- are, are entering into the mind. It is going into the listener. So the reason why we use the term that God spoke to create the world, because when God created the world, He inserted Himself, His beingness, His existence into creation, and that's how creation exists. Because, in truth, God is existence. For something to exist, it must have God's existence in it, and that's the, re- and that's the only way it can exist. So when God created the world, He gave of Himself, of His existence, and planted it into creation. Therefore, at the root, at the core of every existence, what really is the truth of every being? The truth of every being is godliness. It's divinity, it's divine energy that's within every creation that's giving it. If you minus God's energy, if you eliminate, if you take out God's energy from the creation, the creation would 
would be not, it couldn't exist. So, if God is the reality of everything, so then the world should be a very holy world. The world should be a very good world. Because if God is everything, and God is good, and God is nice, and God is kind, that everything in the world should be kind, everything in the world should be good, all of creation should be mirroring and reflecting the Creator, because it is the Creator, it doesn't have anything else but for, it doesn't have any, any of its own independent existence, it's just, it's just God, godliness. So how come there is so much evil in the world? How come there is so much bad in the world? So the Kabbalists explain that when God created the world, the divine energy that comes into the creation is shrouded, it is concealed. Which means when God creates, He filters His creative energy through a contraction, through a filtration, and it goes through many, many veils, and then it goes through a power of darkness, a concealment. Those concealment, those shells, they're spiritual forces of darkness, and what they are meant to do is they're meant to block the resulted creation, the consequential creation, from feeling that its life and its existence is God. That's what it does. That's what Kalipa means. Kalipa is spiritual entities that they're, they, what they serve as a, as a block, just like a peel blocks the fruit, especially in a walnut. It's a very thick husk where someone who have never seen this a, 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 nut, a walnut before might not even know that there is a fruit inside. So we might think that that's all that there is. We know, if you crack it open, there's a fruit. So there is a, a, a peel, a peel that's blocking, that is not allowing the creations to feel, to sense, and to be aware that God is creating them. That's what we mean, and that's where all darkness comes to this world. That's where all unholiness comes from the world. Now, if God is, let's imagine this, if God's energy, and divine light, that is creating us and everything around us, is coming through, is creating, is but it's coming through this peel, this, this shell, this darkness. And when it's coming out on the other side, suddenly a creation emerges, a being emerges. But that being has no sense and no feeling that someone created it. So then that creation is not in a state of submission to God. It's not in a state of serving Hashem, because it doesn't feel God. So if you don't feel God, who then do you feel? What then do you feel? If you're not sensing and feeling that your existence is a consequence of God, if a creation doesn't feel that, so then if it's not God, then who then is it? And it's me. So what emerges on the other side is someone that has a sense of independence. We call that ego. Ego is a sense of existence that is unrelated to its source, to God. Ego is a sense of independence, of autonomous existence. I am. The beginning of unholiness begins with I. It's not, we're not dealing with very, very, very ugly cravings, desires, activity that is monstrous. That's already further developed evil. The beginning of evil, the seed, the very beginning start of, of, of evil, and it's very prist is a sense of I exist, and my existence is real, unrelated to God. So there's a beautiful story from the great student of the holy, the, the, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the holy Mizricha Magid, many students. And um, one of the students uh, st studied by the, by the Reb Doiv Ber of Mizrich for a period of time. And when the semester came to an end, and it was time to leave and go back home, so he came and he went to a friend of his, a colleague of his, to say goodbye. It was the middle of the night, late at night. And, he, and he, he was leaving in the morning, so he wanted to spend some time and, and, uh, with his friend. His friend was the famed Rab Aaron of Karlin. So he comes to the house and he knocks on the door. And Rab Aaron says, who's there? And the guy says, I. Okay, because he was so, they were such good friends and he knew that he recognizes his voice. He said, I. So he said in Yiddish, he said, Ich. And Rab Aaron just continued studying and learning. It's cold outside and the guy's knocking on the door. And Rab Aaron says, who's at the door? Who's there? And he says, I. And he just ignores him. And this goes on and on. 
a few times. Until the guy has lost his patience, he starts banging and he says, Aaron, what's with you? Why don't you let me in? It's cold outside. You crazy or something? And Rabbi Aaron opens up the door and he says, Who is the I? And you're leaving the Magid? Is this what this is what you learned over here? Is there any other I but God? A sense of I is where unholiness begins. So now, if we're going to this animal soul, to the impure soul, and we're trying to figure out what's the root of its negativity, the root of why it's an unholy soul is because at the core of its being, it doesn't sense God, it senses itself. Everything, the nucleus of its, of its existence is I. Everything evolves around the I. That's where it begins. That's where it, where it operates. From that I emerges everything. All, all, of its, all of its drives, all of its aspirations, whatever it seeks, whatever it's looking for, is all emerging from that I. Now that I, now the, this soul, we're all, everybody's a different kind of an ego. Which means the negativity that, that this soul produces, from here is where all of our negative character traits come from. For instance, anger, pride, arrogance, selfishness, greed, um, all these things, um, uh, lusts and the like, they're all obviously coming not from our holy soul, they're all coming from the unholy soul. They're coming from the klipa soul. So why are, we, why, why are there so many different types of people? Meaning, in some people the unholiness, the I, that ego expresses itself in arrogance, some people it's an anger, which means when, it, when if, you, if you step on my toes, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. That's where the negativity comes out. Some people, the I expresses itself in what? In a powerful lust, which means that when they feel, when they have a desire for something, there's nothing stopping them. They will do whatever it is that their heart desires. Why? Because I want. But the I is finding expression in a lust. And other people, the eye is finding expression, as we said, in anger, in pride, in boasting, and the like. Why is, why is it different? So he explains like this, interesting thing. The chemistry of this animal soul, the chemistry of this being, of the unholy, of the ego in man, of the unholy soul, is different by every person because all phenomenon, according to the ancient philosophers and ancient scientists, was based on an idea that there are four elements. How these four elements um, relate to modern science is a question and something that has been discussed, but I don't want to, I don't want to uh, uh, speak about that now. But that there are four, four elements that make up all of existence. And that is water, fire, wind, water, and earth. Now fire, wind, water, and earth doesn't only exist in the physical, it also exists in the spiritual. So there's the spiritual dynamics of fire, there's the spiritual dynamics of water, Spiritual dynamics of earth and spiritual dynamics of, of wind, now of air. Now, being that everything is composed of these four elements, so our animal soul, our animal consciousness, that's coming from the realm of shell, from those things that conceal God, it too is a blend, uh, is made up of these four elements, has within it. And, but by every person it's different. Because by some people the fire element is more dominant in their soul, by some people, the water element is more dominant in their soul. Some people, it's the wind, and some people, it's the earth. And that's what will result in the different kinds of, different kinds of ego, the different kinds of manifestation of ego, which would mean something like this. Those people whose, whose chemistry of their animal soul, again, we can identify with this. Some people, those people who have a lot of fire in them, so fire will emerge, and what kind of an ego? Their ego will manifest in anger. Because anger flares up like fire. It will also manifest itself in arrogance. Because arrogance is a person rising always to the top. Wanting everybody to recognize him. Wanting to be complimented. Wanting to be known. Wanting fame and the like. All that rising is because of the fire element in their soul. Then the water element in the soul is responsible for seeking pleasure. People that are, if we find ourselves being intensely involved in always looking for pleasure, for enjoyment. Why is that? Because we have a lot of water. He says because water is what produces pleasurable things. That's why water seeks pleasure. A person that has a water temperament will be a person that will 
his, the, the ego will express itself in pursuits of physical pleasure. People that have a quality of ear to their animal soul, so the nature of their ego will be that they like to boast. Because what is boasting? Boasting is different than arrogance. Arrogance is you're attributing, you're, 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 feel, you're rising because of something that you really have. Boasting is a person who just is full of hot air. Hot air. There's nothing there, there's no content, it's just, right? Or, or the, 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 the enjoyment. Some people enjoy killing time. They enjoy spending in frivolous conversations, things that are meaningless because of ear. That's people, we call them people that are full of ear because there's no real substance and there's no content. And then there is the earth element. The earth element in the person is what produces laziness and what produces sadness. Because laziness is, like earth, earth is lifeless. So laziness is lifeless, sluggishness, lacking of, of, of energy. The same is also sadness, melancholiness, depression. This is all related to the earth element. And again, everybody is different. So when you look at yourself, you find that there is different manifestations. You can be a lot of, you know, I, I find that I have quite a, quite a nice concoction of all of them. But, but, but we all can identify these various different forces within us. But here's the, here's the most important point. That's not the root. The anger is not the root of the unholy. The root of the unholy is not the, the, the lust that you have. The root of the unholy is the very idea that you're sensing yourself as a being that is unrelated to God. That's already unholy. It's not bad. It's not bad because we're all that way. We all have that. that but that's already not holy. Because holiness is only, and we're going to see later, only something that is submitted and surrender to Hashem. A feeling of disconnect, a feeling of separateness, that is already the unholiness. It's only that that core of unholiness, how does it manifest? That has to do with the nature of that animal inside of us. However, he concludes the, the chapter, just to conclude quickly, and that he says that in general, as Jews, we have an animal consciousness, an animal soul, but as Jews, that animal consciousness, even the animal inside of us, is a little bit of a refined kind of an animal soul. It's a special gift that God has given us. That even the, in order for us to be able to fulfill our mission as Jews, the animal side in us, the ego that is within us, is of a more refined ego. What do we mean by more of a refined ego? We have some good traits that come from our ego too. And that is the natural state that, that it says, the Talmud says that all Jews are naturally kind, mostly, again, of course, there are some pretty nasty people. But generally, it's the nature of people that there is compassion and that they're kind. This kindness and this compassion is not necessarily coming from our soul, from our higher soul, from our godly soul, which we're going to discuss next week, but rather it's coming even from our ego, ego, even from our animal soul. Because the animal soul inside of us is a mixture of good and bad. Primarily bad, which means primarily it expresses itself in negative traits, negative personality in characteristics, but it has a little bit good. Why is there a mixture of good in it? Because he says that the animal soul, our animal soul, comes from, we said earlier, the reason why the soul is dark. The reason why we're not a, we don't feel God and we feel ourselves is because there is this filter. There is this block. God is creating, His creative energy is coming through this filter that is blocking and we're not feeling God. But the question is, how dense is this curtain? How thick? How much of a block is it? So he says an interesting thing. There are various different kinds of curtains. It means there are different levels of klipa. There are those shells that are very, very, very opaque. They're very thick. Since it's very, very thick and very dense, it doesn't allow any godly light to pass. Which means that the creation was created on the other side is living in a total blackout of godliness. Doesn't feel God at all. If you don't feel God at all, then you feel yourself very, very, very much. Which means it creates a very, very strong ego 
An ego so strong that you don't really have room for anybody else to exist. I am, me. Then, sure you can live amongst other people too. And you can even be kind to other people. But even when you're kind, you're always looking for some personal gain. I am kind to you, so you're going to be kind to me. Or I am being giving to you so that you will recognize me, that you will acknowledge me. I will get something from it. But to do kindness to another human being just because they exist and you want to give something to them, a soul that is of, of a very thick ego, of a very thick klipa, is incapable of that. Incapable of that. He says, the, however, a soul that comes from a created from that other kind of a klipa, the klipa that is opaque but slightly translucent, which means a little bit light passes through. That's a creation that is created from that kind of, which is created through that kind of a of a of a of a of a of a, um, of a curtain. Even though it's dark, it's not completely dark. It has a some sense, a very light, a little bit of a sense that someone created me. A natural sense that I have. There is a God that made me. And therefore, that same God who created me created other people too. And that other people also have a, a right to exist. And therefore, why should everything that I own, why should it all be mine? Why shouldn't I share with others? So the nature of this animal soul that is not so dense is because, it'll, because the ego is not so thick, it's not so firm. So that's why there is a natural knack for goodness and kindness even coming from the animal. So this shell is called the glowing shell. Two types of shell. There is a very dark shell, and there is a glowing shell. The glowing shell in the, in the terms is called klipas noga. The shell of noga, which is a, a, a little bit light, passes through it. It's still a shell, but it's, but it's a little bit light passes. So just to conclude of what he, of what he says, to, to wrap up the, the chapter, and to conclude is as follows. The good thing is, that even though we are created with this dark side, we recognize that interesting thing which he says later in Tanya is that our unholy soul is wired up. It's plugged into a huge, huge mass. A huge chunk of the creation is plugged in to our animal, our unholy soul. And when as a Jew, and as any human being, but especially as a Jew, when we shine our godly, our godliness, our higher soul, and illuminate bit by bit the animal side in us, and we change it, we, we, we diminish the ego slowly through our life, bit by bit, not only are we illuminating our own darkness, but we're changing the very chemistry of all of creation and all of existence. The sublimation and our struggles, our sublimation of our own self has such a huge impact. So therefore, even though sometimes we find ourselves struggling with darkness, and struggling again with darkness and darkness, and recognize, where and what am I already gaining? To know that in every struggle, and in every victory, and every time you transcend your, your ego, and you do what's right, and you do what's godly, introducing holiness and godliness into your life, you're having a massive effect on all of creation, and changing it for all of eternity. And that's as as he's going to explain in the further chapters. Now, we'll open up the questions. Yes? Yeah. Yes. You mean to say by the higher, but the one that is not, not for judgment.